1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Thomas Hager. He's an author of a lot of really super interesting books that I recently read, such as uh, 10 Drugs, How Plants, Powders, and Pills Have Shaped the History of Medicine. Uh, he has also another book, The Demon Under the Microscope, about sulfa drugs um, and several other titles that they are really great reads. So, Tom, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, What what's what genre of of writing would you uh, call your books is it uh I, I guess scientific history or what
2: is it you know i would i think that basically what i'm trying to do is to is to write books that bring non scientists you know people who don't know a lot about science or maybe or don't like science or kind of afraid of science or whatever i'm trying to introduce science to people by telling stories so I, what i do is i write books that uh emphasize human stories um that often revolve around science but they're you know, they're stories that anybody can listen to and enjoy and relate to. The the technical term for what I do is narrative nonfiction. But basically what I'm doing right. is telling stories about science and
1: medicine. What was your first foray into this uh, genre? What got you into it?
2: Well, I was trained as a scientist. Um, I got uh, a master's degree and was working on a Ph.D. in, in medical microbiology uh, years and years ago. But I didn't really like the, the and, and I was very interested in the subject. But I didn't want to spend my life in a laboratory. Uh, personally, it's just not my personality. I, I get bored, you know, doing the same thing over and over and over. You have to be really, you know, precise, which I, I appreciate. But I didn't want to spend my life, you know, doing the same thing over and over. So, I got out of the laboratory and I went back and and uh, learned how to write in a journalism program. At the University of Oregon, go Ducks, and then uh, put the two together. So I ended up writing nonfiction about science and history, uh, science and medicine.
1: Yeah, and your your first book is what, The Demon Under the Microscope?
2: No, before that, my first real book. Uh, I mean, I've I've written about a dozen books in one form or another. But my first uh, big solo book was called Force of Nature. It was a biography of the only American to win two unshared Nobel prizes, and that was Linus Pauling, a chemist. So I got to I got to go meet uh, Linus Pauling, one of the great scientists of our age. Got to go down and talk to him in California several times. Great experience.
1: That's cool. Okay. And now, I know this is kind of skipping ahead, we'll come back to the you know the most recent book. But what's on your wish list of topics or books? Are you able <laughs> to say
2: the wish list of future future topics? Man, I've yeah. got a file. I've got a file about an inch thick with book ideas. I come up with a new book idea about every two or three days, and and I write right. them down. I put them in a file. So so I've got a ton of stuff. I am working. I, I will say this: I'm working on a book currently. It's going to be out in about a year. It's about um, the time when, in this is set back in the 1920s. It was a time when uh, Henry Ford was the richest man in America. Henry Ford, inventor of the Model T founder of Ford Motor mm. Company, richest man in America got together with Thomas Edison, who was like the greatest inventor in, in history. Edison and Ford decided that they were going to build a technological utopian city. They were going to build a very modern, clean energy, new form of currency, like, like they were going to do away with regular money, um, city in the middle of America that would employ 100,000 people, and, and it would be a city 75 miles long. It was this huge project. Nobody knows about it. I found out about it. And so that's my next
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, well, at least you'll be busy writing for uh, many, many years, hopefully. That's great. Well, so yeah, that's, to talk about.
2: that's the plan. That's the plan.
1: Okay, well, excellent. Well, let's let's talk about the uh, so the latest book is the 10 Drugs book, right?
2: Yes, that is correct.
1: So um, with that book, um, you know, can you go over just some of the, uh, you know, we want people to read it, but what are what are some of the The drugs that really stand out in your mind that you think had an outside influence on our culture and our society that that you want to talk about.
2: Sure. You know, uh, like like a lot of people, I'm really fascinated with uh, drugs, which, you know, I kept finding out surprising stuff about drugs. And and I wanted to do a book that talked about kind of like how we got to where we are today with drugs. When, uh, you, you know, you hear a lot about uh, the opioid epidemic, opioid overdose and <laughs> so on. And you also hear a lot about, you know, new wonder drugs that are, that are doing wonderful things like these uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies that that uh, save cancer patients that were unsavable like 5, 10 years ago. So there's, uh, you know, there's stories behind each one of these. What I did uh, was go in and, and pick 10 groups of drugs that I thought were v- Tell, would together tell the whole story about the history of drugs in, in, in the world, but particularly in America. And um, then I, I found out the stories behind the drugs and, and put their stories together to tell this larger history. So it's basically, it's like a group, of, it's like 10 short stories. Each short story focuses on one really important drug, but does it in a way that, that tells stories about how the drugs happened and, and what they've done to our society you know, it was hard to pick. It was hard to pick 10 because there's about 20,000 drugs that you can buy now. And picking the 10 that really mattered was was interesting. But anyway, I've got some surprises in there, some things people don't ever think about. And there's some drugs that people will know, like Viagra and statins, very common Mm -hmm. drugs. And so it's a mix. It's a mix of stuff, but I think it's entertaining.
1: Yeah, the most expansive story was, uh, you know, opium to opioids to morphines. And, you know, that was a really cool one that and yeah. you know, hundreds of years of history. Was a very thousands,
2: thousands of years of history.
1: A thousand, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how much work did uh did it take to write a book like that? Like, what what's involved in the research?
2: Well, it you know the usual thing for a book that I do uh, because it's pretty heavy. I'm I'm a research fiend. I'm I'm just you know I have a <laughs> bibliography you know, of, of for stuff for this book for the ten drugs book. Hundreds and hundreds of articles and books that I read and. And uh, you know, you talk to people, you gather all this information. That takes about a year you know, of time just to do the research, and then it's about another year to write it. And then the, you give it to the publisher, and then the publisher takes about a year to get it together, make a book out of it. So it's a two and a half, three year process from the time you get started until the time the book shows
1: up. Yeah, I've noticed um, some scientists that I've spoken to that their books are called textbooks. And then it kind of ruins it and makes it more expensive and inaccessible to the public. So, did you have any back and forth with your publisher? Did they try to classify it as a textbook?
2: I steer away from te- from writing textbooks because um, that's a it's a whole different field of publishing. What I do is publish with uh, kind of mainstream, you know, publishers who publish the kind of books you see in bookstores. You know, they're they're for the general public. They're not for students. Although my books get used in classroom um, occasionally they're not like basic textbooks and the reason is that i don't write like a textbook i i you know my style is much more i guess uh, a popular style it's it's uh i try and write science stories like they're detective stories or or adventure stories or or you know stories of discovery, which is real i mean that's that's part of what science is is this sense of adventure and detective work um but i i write them the way that you would write a novel it you know they've got characters and they've got plots so it's very different than a normal text god bless the textbook writers i use textbooks all the time
1: for you know mm-hmm. to do
2: my research but uh i
1: couldn't write one yeah no it's far more interesting the way you write you know you focus on the characters and the people behind the drugs and uh, you know their personalities and the dynamics of their relationships so it makes no, it a lot more interesting to read than the textbook for sure.
2: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Um, so what's any surprising insights that you have that you didn't capture in the, in the 10 Drugs book from researching all this? How does it change your perception of, of drugs yes. and how we use them?
2: Well, the thing that, that really struck me after doing all this research was the degree to which our lives in America in particular, because the USA is the world's number one consumer of drugs, and when I say drugs, I'm not talking about illegal drugs. I didn't write about recreational drugs uh, or illegal drugs much in the book. I wrote mostly about pharmaceuticals that, that are prescribed by doctors, these things that have changed our health habits. What surprised me was the degree to which our lives have come to revolve around drugs in ways that we don't even think about. Um, it's, I was surprised, for instance, to find out that people in the USA you know, take on average over their lifetime, uh, probably about 50,000 pills, uh, which is a huge number of pills. And half of Americans take at least one prescription drug. And most of that group take more than one prescription. You got older people who are taking five or 10 prescriptions, you know, at a time. And I I was really struck by the ways in which they changed not only our health, which they have, you know, our lives are much longer thanks to, thanks to medicinal drugs, but also the practice of medicine, the way our doctors treat us, the way we treat our own health, the, even our cultural stuff. You know, for instance, uh, women um, women's opportunities, career choices, educational opportunities changed tremendously as a result of a drug uh, in the 1960s, which was the contraceptive pill. It changed culture. It wasn't just health. It changed our culture hmm. and our our opportunities so so I was just I kept finding out more and more about how important
1: drugs are in our life. and uh, did you get feedback from readers that was uh surprising or you know, positive or negative or instructive <laughs> yes. to you
2: i got I've gotten back a lot of nice 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 feedback uh, from readers. most readers are great, but I got to tell you um on Amazon there was one review one one review out of the, out of the reviews on amazon um that that Still, kind of bugs me because it was the it was the most negative review the book has gotten, Um, and it was written by a guy whose uh, name, his screen name, was Biotech Exec, and he accused the book of being like having uh, uh, like false and misleading information and attacking the pharmaceutical industry, which I went way out of my way not to do, and and he didn't provide any examples, no examples or anything. That review, but other than that, they've all been great.
1: Okay, well, that's excellent. Yeah. Um, any of the, uh, I mean, I don't know. Has it changed your behavior when you, uh, you know, think about taking prescriptions or not taking them? I mean, you, you know, you did mention that, uh, uh, you know, you got a note from a hospital saying, "Oh, you may have a risk of, uh, you know, some kind of condition," but you checked into it yourself and you thought you were you were probably okay. But the, yeah. any other changes in your own perception about drugs? Are they? Yeah. Do you feel like they're way prescribed or depends on the person?
2: Well, it depends on the person. And, you know, if you've got a medical problem, drugs can be a lifesaver, and they're great for for millions of people, and they really have extended our lifespans. They're tremendously powerful technologies. But some of them are overprescribed, and, you know, and and drug companies uh, have a way of pushing their products that can sometimes border on the unethical and have sometimes been illegal also. Um, so So there's that side of it, you know, the way that drugs are pushed at us uh on tv you know tv ads and even through our doctors and so on so so there's a the good side and bad side it's like everything you know everything is got a good side and a bad side in science pretty much and drugs are no exception no drug is, i write in the book no drug is good no drug is bad every drug is both in other words every drug has a good thing that it does for you and you can but you can misuse it or you can suffer a negative side effect. Every drug has side effects. So you don't get the good without the bad. Every drug is both good and bad. And I think that's important for people to remember. I feel like uh I feel like I'm a more educated consumer now because um the research that I did for the book. So I'm able to judge better uh which drugs I'm gonna take and which drugs I'm not gonna take.
1: There's one statement you made in the book which like <laughs> It just made me crack up laughing. I don't, I don't know if I'll say it right, but you said something like this. It was like, uh, drug companies up until this point were were used to you know finding chemical solutions for things and not biological. They weren't geared up to, to like I guess consider or use biology in order to uh, you know to create drugs to help people with medical problems. And I, mm-hmm. you know, that's how I phrase it. But that's insane. How could you, you know, to create drugs and things to help people. Who are biological? You don't consider the biology, and you don't think that you know. It just well, it just blew my mind when I heard that.
2: Yeah, no. the The difference is, you know, certainly, uh, drugs. Let's go back, say, fifty years. Uh, before that time, most drugs were chemicals that were derived from plants, often or were in the lab, made in the laboratory. So the drugs themselves were chemicals. They were called small molecule drugs. Uh, they were tended to be pretty small compared to the size of the, the molecules that you make in your own body. Molecules you make in your own body tend to be ginormous compared to most older drugs. And, and so the switch happened starting about 50 years ago um, toward medicines that were based on biological molecules. So the difference is in the old days, they were small molecule chemicals, and now they're manipulating biological molecules like antibodies um, and enzymes and genes that have medicinal effects. And that's a biological shift to where the medicine itself is biological. All of them act on your body, which is a biological system. So that part is absolutely the same. You're, you know, ultimately, their effects are biological. But the sources used to be more chemical, and now a lot of hot new drugs are what we call biologicals, which are molecules very similar to the ones produced in your own body. They're much larger, they act in a different way, and uh but they they are biological in order.
1: And I guess that's you know, it's not obvious and that's like a super important distinction, you know, in how medicine has changed recently.
2: Yeah. It has. The other okay. thing about biologicals and that shift is that biologicals often tend to be more expensive. So uh like uh the biological i deal with most in the book is called monoclonal antibodies. Monoclonal antibodies are are a big deal now. They're like six out of the top ten biggest selling drugs, you know, biggest money makers in the drug world are now monoclonal antibodies. These are biologicals that didn't exist, you know, 50 years ago, but are now this, you know, more than half of the biggest selling drugs are are these biologicals. But they make so much money in part because they're so expensive to take. You hear about people who have serious disease who want a monoclonal antibody. Sometimes they have to spend you know, t- enormous amounts of money to get a year's worth of treatment. You know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for these drugs. So that's that's you know, there's a plus and a minus to
1: biologicals. Yeah, problems. it's it's amazing. I've heard some some treatments can be hundreds of thousands of dollars for certain cancers. I mean, it's, do, you, do you see the price of them coming down at all to a you know, a feasible 100%. level for for the average person or no?
2: I, I, I hope that they do, and I imagine that they will. The history of drugs is they often uh, start out being more expensive than they end up uh, because of people. It, it has to do with patent laws and how long uh, a drug company can charge whatever it wants for a drug before it goes generic, you know, before other people can make that same drug. So this is a hot field, you know, a lot of changes legally in that way. But the, uh, I would imagine that monoclonals will come down
1: I would hope so. Otherwise it'd be difficult to uh, then have any widespread use. So expensive, you know?
2: They are so expensive, but the you know, they make a lot of money for the drug companies, for sure, because they can charge so much. They're very specialized medicines. And that's a shift that, you know, has, has happened fairly recently is um just with that class of drugs, these monoclonal antibodies, um, they're they're used for highly, you know, really serious life threatening diseases like cancer. Mm-hmm. Or debilitating diseases like arthritis and joint uh, joint inflammation they um, are tremendously expensive because people are in serious trouble when they when they get prescribed them, and they and their insurance companies figure out that uh, it's you know it 's worth the money to say save a life um, but that 's you know the history of drugs is mostly uh, concerned with less expensive drugs uh, that often do save lives but very often don 't save a life at all. Uh, You mentioned statins. I wrote a chapter on statins, which are Mm -hmm. very inexpensive drugs. A lot of people are taking statins. Millions and millions of people are taking statins to lower their cholesterol. And um, those drugs are very inexpensive. They occasionally save a life. But, you know, my research showed that most of the people who haven't had heart disease already who are taking statins might not get the benefit they think they're going to get out of it. So, So it's a mixed bag.
1: Yeah, are there any uh, up-and-coming treatment protocols or drugs that you know you didn't have time to put into the book, but uh, you know about because of your research?
2: Well, you know, I mentioned I mentioned some things uh, coming down the pipeline. I mentioned uh, drugs that have digital sensors in them. Cause, you know, they're they're developing uh, tablets now or or capsules that have a, a tiny little uh, electronic sensor in them that will. Send out a signal when the drug is dissolved in your body. It's a way of tracking the fact that you've actually taken the drug, uh, which is used uh, when, you know, in especially in the old, it has potential use in patients who um, don't remember, often like older patients might not remember to take their pill when they should. And they can now track when the pill has been taken and remind the person to take the drug and stuff like that. So there's stuff in the pipeline that's coming down that's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, But one thing I saw in the book was that, you know, in the research for the book is that there's always surprises. There's always stuff you don't know about that's going to come out of left field. might be huge.
1: So there's no, are very difficult to predict. Okay. Yeah. I I wonder with uh, drugs that can track whether you take them or not, if, uh, you know, we'll discover that compliance and taking drugs is much lower than we thought or. If it'll lead to, uh, you know, insurance companies uh, demanding that if you don't adhere to it and take it, then they're not going to subsidize it. I mean, it's a yeah. whole, I guess, many cans of worms that that could open up.
2: It certainly, yeah, it certainly does. But it's part of, you know, it goes along with the uh, the whole move uh, toward a more more and more surveillance of your daily activities kind of thing. See where it would be really beneficial for people who are supposed to take a drug but don't. Uh, that, that sounds to me like a real benefit, but then on the other hand, they could track your drug taking activity with almost anything.
1: Mm, interesting. So what, um, are there any books that, uh, you know, you have in your list that you don't think will ever get written that you think need to be written or any topics that, uh, you'd love to cover, but, uh, for some reason you don't see yourself doing it in the near future?
2: Well, I think that, uh, uh, food production is a huge issue for, uh, our species, you know. We're in the last stages of this huge population explosion. It's been going on for about 100 and 150 years now, in which our population has been shooting up and up and up and up. Um, So around 1900, there were about a billion people on Earth. Now there's 7 billion plus. And it's going to keep going up to about 10, 11 uh, billion in the next 50 years or so. Um, That is a huge issue. One part of that issue is how are we going to feed everybody? Without like destroying mm. the the earth, the ecosphere, uh, our biological systems. How are we going to be able to feed ten another three billion people? You know, a fifty percent increase in world population coming up very quickly. How are we going to feed them all? I think that's a huge topic, and I'm fascinated with that. Um, so far, I haven't been able to get a, a publisher to publish a book about
1: it, but I'm hoping. To. Yeah, do you do you sense any um, you know the guiding hand of the publishers, or the things that are popular right now, or things that the they want published things that they don't. Any oh sure any insights there
2: <laughs> for aspiring book writers out there? My
1: <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering, you know, what, I, you know, I'm just wondering, I guess, what what needs to be written about that maybe isn't being written about, and, you yeah. know, in your opinion. But you've already covered that. So.
2: Well, the you know the deal with publishing uh, book publishing is publishers will publish stuff if they think people are interested enough to buy the book. So they they mm-hmm. want to be able to sell their books, uh, same way drug company wants to be able to sell drugs you know they're they're in business to sell books they have to publish books that people will buy and so they're always looking for topics that are hot um food production is sort of like wonkier and uh, not as sexy as a lot of topics so I think that, you know, it's a more difficult sell for a pub for a writer like me to um you know, to sell a, a publisher on a book like that because you know they're looking for something that that might uh, sell a few more books a little faster and that's their business. I don't I don't blame them at all.
1: Yeah, another quick question. Um when you write, you know, some of the stuff you're writing about is, you know, maybe happened 50 years ago, some is very contemporary, but some of it's very old like when you talks about opium, etc. Yep. Yeah. Is it a lot harder to get information on things that happened, you know, a couple hundred years ago or or even longer and how do how do writers even find that stuff?
2: Well, the research process, as I told you, I'm a demon for research. And the research process is fascinating. There's a million ways to go about it. Um you know and, and uh I will tell you though that from my experience, writing a lot of history, it's sometimes you know, there's some things that are easier about getting old information rather than new information. A lot of hmm. Like recent information in the drug world is uh, proprietary, you know, it's kept by these corporations and it's hard to get to because they don't want the, you know, they're worried about bad, bad publicity. They don't want anything negative to get out there. And so they are, they tend not to share a lot of current information. However, historically, you can use stuff that's been published about uh, companies in the past. They have less of an interest in that and protecting that. So it's, some of it's more accessible. Some of the older stuff is more except and uh, so it's it's kind of a conundrum. It's a good it's a big issue, but there's um, you know the downside of historical research is that a lot of times the records have been destroyed or they were never kept in the first place. So it's a little harder takes more work to put together a really good story
1: about the past sometimes.
2: But it's it's possible.
1: Yeah, I wonder to have people write history books, especially on really really old things. You know, how do you how do you find all that stuff? How do you find all that info? You know. <laughs>
2: It varies. Some people varies. told me, yeah. oh,
1: you know, people used to write a lot more letters, which they did, and you know, it's uh, in some ways it's easier, like you said. In some ways, it's harder.
2: Yeah, that's right, and and it is true that uh, you know there there were there were letters, but a lot of them have been lost. So it's a trade off, and and uh, sometimes you really have to dig hard in places that people don't usually look. Like my deal is that if I'm say working with old records from a company. I was uh, the demon under the microscope was a book I did about sulfur drugs that were developed at uh, the Bayer Corporation in Germany uh, in the 1920s, 1930s. And I I flew to Germany in order to get the story. I flew to Germany <laughs> and and into the Bayer Corporation and to the corporate archivist that kept this enormous room full of old records. Uh, it was you know it was like uh, that scene in Raiders from the Lost Ark. Where they go into wow. this huge warehouse. It wasn't quite that big, but it was big. And it was stuffed with all the corporate records because the corporation felt it necessary to keep them. But they they gave me free run of that place and I got to look up all kinds of interesting stuff. So it varies from project to project.
1: That's cool. I used I guess there are thousands of repositories of knowledge that uh you know, it's very difficult to get access to.
2: Well, and you have to think about getting access to it. You know, you have to consider all of the possibilities a lot of a lot of records are kept in you know university libraries a lot of records are kept in historical societies some records are kept in old county courthouses you know if you've got a mm. hot project and you want the information you can you can often find
1: i guess there's a whole uh, method of research itself that you've kind of had to figure out over time to do this
2: that's right and it's just lucky that i've got that science side in me the science side is endlessly curious about everything and willing to do a little work to find an answer. So I'm willing to do mm-hmm. the, you know, I'm willing to do the research work because I love it. And, and, uh, you know, do the, do the digging. Um, that's, I think it really does make for better books.
1: Yeah, oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, like I said, I can tell listeners, you know, my experience was they were delightful. To, I listened to them in audiobook, like I told you, and, uh, they were super interesting to listen to. They weren't like a textbook at all. And, I learned all kinds of stuff, you know, like I learned now the um the atmosphere in Germany from, you know, 1900 up to uh World War II and I saw, you know, why and how where Hitler came from and all the social dynamics and everything through reading one of your books and it was, it was really fascinating.
2: That's cool. I'm I'm really glad to hear that cuz you know, that's another thing people don't think about. You you sort of think like science is separate from everything else. These scientists are like in their laboratories and they're not part of the bigger life we lead and stuff. But that's not true. You know, science is kind of woven in with everything. It's, you know, economics, money, business practices, political history, cultural history. It all is wound around in science, which makes it more interesting for me than to think of it as being somehow, you know, often divisive. It's not. You know, it, it is vital to our lives, the way we live day to day. It's just like uh, like central to who we are and yet very few people think about where it came from how these discoveries happened and so forth so it's cool that you know that you got a little other sort of side information along the way that's great
1: you know it was also interesting the consequence of various people's discoveries some of them it ruined their lives you know some of them it yeah. brought them great fame and then it, their lives are ruined so it's it's yeah. weird how the science reflects back on the person that uh, that figured it out and changes their life so dramatically
2: yeah it does, and, and uh, that's, you know, that makes for a good story, um, because if, if you find a flawed inventor or discoverer, a scientist who, where you can make their personal life come alive to show that these scientists are real people, too, you know, they they sometimes do suffer from their discoveries, and, uh, and, and sometimes they get rich and famous, and sometimes they, they get alcoholic and suicidal. So you know it's it's all over the map, and that's what keeps it interesting.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, excellent. So your new book, Ten Drugs, um, it's on Amazon, Audible, Kindle, everywhere books are sold, right?
2: Yeah, it is correct.
1: Okay, and where can listeners find out and see like your whole library of books, you know, all the titles, maybe in one place and find out more? Sure,
2: you know the the best place probably my website, which is uh, thomashager.net, T H O M A S pjgr.net and that has that has all my stuff and, and background and so forth and you can you know if you put my name if you put tom Hager into google you'll find
1: okay well very good well tom thanks for coming it's been a really interesting call i appreciate it and you know keep writing books as fast as you can
2: all right uh, thank you thank you good to be on
0: you're listening to the future tech health podcast with richard jacobs until I reached age of 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. FutureTech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials. Or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.